Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. We are sponsored by the EPL Prospectus, a 280-page guide of the upcoming season created by a team of 25-plus writers and designers. Moneyball for football, analytics plus high candy. Available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Today I'm joined by the hardest working soccer analyst, Harshal Patel. I'm host Chris Mumford, known as the Professor, Bella Chow. In week three, the season is starting to find its footing. The big six teams are overburdened with expectations and generally are not matching them. We break down the Man U Brighton. Chelsea, West Brom, Everton, Crystal Palace, Tottenham, Newcastle, and Man City, Leicester matches. We also discuss the Leeds-Sheffield United tussle. For now, the newly promoted teams are holding their own. We preview the Arsenal-Liverpool game along with notable matches including Leeds-Man City, Arsenal-Sheffield United, and Man U and Tottenham. Let's get ready to rumble. Harshel, Help us unpack the Man U Brighton match. I mean, it was, I think that game sort of sums up the season we've had so far. We are only three weeks into it, but it feels like it's been a crazy season in terms of um, the goals that have gone in and just the sheer number of goals and penalties that we've seen. Uh, I think um, people would, uh, there's a stat doing the rounds that we've not had a single goalless draw in the league so far with three weeks of action. And in fact, the Chelsea-West Brom game, which we'll talk about later, was the first draw of this season. And as it turns out, the only draw of the season so far. So it's just been a goal fest uh, all around. And this game was the same where, I mean, I, I genuinely think Brighton were really unlucky. They hit the woodwork five times. I think Saudi March hit the woodwork. Uh, sorry, Deandre Trossard himself hit the woodwork, hit the post in bar thrice. Solly March hit the bar once and I think Adam Webster hit the bar once from a, a header. And yet they've come away with nothing. And it, it, it's quite uh, interesting or rather, I mean, not interesting from a Brighton point, uh, few, uh, fan's point of view, but they've played really well against Chelsea and they lost that game. They played really well against United and they lost that game as well. So I think they'll be quite um, unhappy with the final result, but I think Brighton fans should be uh, generally happy with the way their team has looked because they've looked like a real... Uh, force in terms of being able to go toe-to-toe with some of the bigger teams which they've shown in the game against Chelsea and uh, yesterday against uh, United as well. What's your take on Man U's performance? And, you know, they're they're what the pundits are saying, but do you have any takes that are a little bit different than why Man U is playing the way they are right now? It's, I've been saying this for a long time ever since um, sort of Ole got the job permanently that and it's not just about Ole, it's, it's a general thing where at the top level of football now, you need to have defined patterns of play. You need to have a defined tactical structure in place to do well at the absolute top level. And Klopp and Guardiola are two very good examples of that. But also, for example, um, Chris Wilder at Sheffield United, uh, Marcelo Bielsa at Leeds. They all have a very defined tactic, uh, tactical system and a structure of play. What that does is that helps teams do well when the players are not doing well individually. Like Even if you may be out of form, if you've been coached in such a way where certain movements, certain runs, certain passes are 
almost second nature to you because you've practiced them multiple times in training then even if you're not say at the top of your game mentally or physically you can you'll still pull off those moves because they've been sort of ingrained into you and you can still progress the ball and maybe create an attacking opportunity that's not the case with united we on all all throughout all is um since the time that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has been in charge we've seen them rely a lot more on the players individual ability and skills in the final third where they basically told to go out and do whatever they want on the final third and come up with their own ways to break down teams and that doesn't work at the top level and that's what's happening at united because obviously they've had they barely had a pre-season they played one friendly they've had i think the three week break so and Ole said it himself i think that uh, after the match that we're in week 4 or week 5 where we of a pre-season right now so it's understandable that the players are off physically but at the same time you could see clear deficiencies in the way they were playing like for example when brighton pressed them brighton pressed to the front three and the the two in midfield were closing off the passing lanes into pogba and, uh, and fernandes so then united had no way to progress the ball up the field it would it would either be um a pass back to the center back and across to the other side and then they would nick the ball away or they try to play the ball into midfield but there it wouldn't be done well enough and brighton would win the ball back we saw brighton win the ball back so many times in dangerous areas and then they uh, were able to sort of generate attacks so it's the same thing that i've always said with solskjaer that um united can also i mean go out and buy whoever they want they, um, even if they get the jaden sancho deal over the line and they get a center back or a midfielder whoever they want a left back is what is doing the rounds now so whoever they get in but if you don't have a set pattern of play or if you don't have set um tactics which you can employ in matches you're always going to face trouble and to, uh, that's also what's happening at frank lampard at chelsea as well which we'll obviously talk about in uh, in further detail later on but that's the issue with both these guys at these clubs so i think my my counterpoint to that is uh we're 2 weeks into the season uh and we got to win and it was against a team we should have beat and we beat them uh that that's that's probably where where i am i i i do like the concept of what you say and and you see it a lot of that happening and there's this whole movement of old school versus new school this transition that's going to occur um and i guess the jury's still out on that i think former players or new fairly recent players turn managers it'll be interesting to see how willing they are to embrace that um as opposed to let the their past experiences dictate what should and shouldn't be done um so let's with that let's go ahead and move to the Chelsea uh West Brom match help us break that game down again another sort of crazy game West Brom went 3-0 up in the first half and then Chelsea scored um thrice in the second half to equalize um a bunch of one thing which i found interesting amongst everything else obviously people spoke about Thiago Silva uh, talking about Thiago Silva the fact that he made a mistake um that was then capitalized on by West Brom to score their second goal and that the whole i mean it's the same discussion that you have a lot of times whenever a foreign player arrives in the premier league that he'll take time to adapt to the premier league and pace and the intensity and all of that and i absolutely don't agree to that thiago silva has played in serie a for ac milan he's won the serie a title uh, multiple uh, i don't know multiple times but he's definitely won it once in 2011 and 11 12 and he's obviously a serial winner with psg reached the final of the champions league this year been captain of brazil all of that so he's a top class center back i don't think he's going to have problems adapting to the premier league i honestly think it's a much smaller thing than that with regard to him he was played on the left side of the two center backs he was played on the left 
he's played the majority of his career on the right last season as well he was playing on the right with Preston Kimpembe on the left for PSG now it's a very subtle thing but what happens is when you're playing on the left as a right-footed player and you get the ball which he did on that angle from Kovacic you have to open your body up to then pass it out to your right side whereas if it's a left-footed player who gets that he can open his body up and play it out to his left left inside there in and the angle at which he's getting the ball is will allow him to do that but the angle at which at which Kovacic um, sort of sent him the ball in that sense. Had he been at as the right-sided centre-half, he could have easily passed it out to the right side. But because he's on the left side, he has to turn his body and then create that angle to make that pass in field. And in turning and trying to scan where his options are, he sort of rolled his studs on it and the ball went away from him. So, I mean, obviously it is a mistake, but it, it's also born out from the fact that he's playing in a position, however minor the change may be, however minor the difference may be, but he's still playing in a position which he's not accustomed to. So, I think Lampard didn't really do him too many favours there. And otherwise, from a broader tactical point of view, I think it's the same thing which I spoke about last week as well. Even Lampard needs to A, figure out if he can figure out a, a system of play and a defined tactic which um, can help the players progress the ball up the field. Because again, it looks like he's relying on their off-the-cuff um, sort of moves coming off in the final third and maybe someone maybe hitting a long-range goal or somebody improvising and getting a cross in and stuff like that. There's not really too much of uh, sustained attacking moves or, or, or sort of... Uh, you can't see evidence of specific attacking moves where, where you can see clear evidence that, okay, he's trying to isolate the left-back against the right-winger, for example. So it's the same thing. And he's got the likes of Havertz, Mount, all of these guys on the pitch, but they still don't know all their roles um, very clearly. So... It's again the similar sort of situation to Solskjaer in that sense. Yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. I mean, I would say the goals were individual mistakes that you would expect to kind of see early on in the season, particularly when they're new players that haven't played together for more than 10 practices, probably 15 practices at most. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's unfortunate. It's it's gonna. If you want to win the title, you you can't tie matches like this. But you know, that's that's kind of what it, they happen. Maybe you, the the a more optimistic perspective is they were down three zero and they did tie it up to pick up a point. And Callum Hudson Adoy really, in my mind, kind of picked up the whole team and carried it on his back. And frankly, Abraham did too. And I, I will say that I feel like um, it's unfortunate that either Lampard or the club has more or less decided to at least optically throw the homegrowns under the, bu the proverbial bus by yeah. going out and spending a couple hundred million dollars. And then guess who the folks that were the real difference makers? So. I'm maybe I'm old fashioned and nostalgic, but my vote would have been to stay with that. They didn't do bad last last season, um, sticking with that system, uh, and now they're going to have to regel everything. And it could end up being great, but it's a high risk, high reward proposition. And I just didn't feel that they needed to necessarily blow things up versus last season. They defense, defense, defense. Fifty four goals last season, right? I mean, that that's where the money should be spent and um but you know that's that's not the chelsea way i suppose so um let's turn our attention to everton crystal palace everton seems to be making a case that they could 
contend in the big six. Is that a, a fair assessment based on what you saw in this match? Yeah, and what I mean, another thing which ties into a larger sort of trend which I think might happen throughout the season is that I mean, it may not be exactly like the 15-16 season where Leicester obviously had that fairy tale triumph. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's one or maybe two teams this year which post a sort of surprise in that sort of way. Maybe not winning the title, but an unfancy team making it into the top four or the top six or something like that. Because this is obviously the most disrupted and unique season we've ever had. There's barely been a pre-season, um, even less so for some of the bigger teams. And with the change in the handball law that we've seen, which is giving away so many penalties, the fact that, again, because of that disruption, we're seeing, I think, defending, I don't know what's happened to teams defending. You know, there have been goals, the goal scoring has been at an absolutely different level in the first three weeks. So, this season seems like one of those where you could see a team which is, which may be either better prepared or just maybe are able to adapt better to the sort of changing circumstances we have this year and then they're able to put on a run and it looks like, I mean, obviously, it's just three weeks but at the moment, it looks like Everton are one of those sides which could be, you know, up there um, at the end of the season. Obviously, long way to go but given the first three weeks, I've been really impressed. I did say last week that there was a bit of a um, problem in the way their midfield was setting up and that the, it looked like some of the roles and... Uh, positions of some of the players weren't exactly clear, which obviously is understandable given the fact that they essentially got a new midfield in. But uh, Crystal Palace themselves had a really good start. They won their first two games. So this wasn't ever going to be an easy game in that sense. And Everton did well. They, they scored Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Uh, looks like he's on a bit of a hot streak at the moment from sort of last season onwards. Uh, and the other guys around him, obviously, James is just pure class. He showed that this time around as well. Richarlison is scoring goals as well. And that defensive unit is now slowly looking like it's gelling together with Alan anchoring and Bukure providing the energy in midfield as sort of the box-to-box player. So, Everton are a team who look like they've got a solid first 11. Like Ancelotti has his first 11 absolutely ready now and he knows what his first choice 11 is. And they look like they're gelling. They, they look like they've got some sort of understanding going on between some of those players. And it'll be really interesting to see. I was really happy with how they played in against Palace. Well, I think the fixture list um, suits them. They've got Brighton, uh, and then they've got a tough challenge against Liverpool. But then they have Southampton, Newcastle um, before they see Man U. So I do think that if there's a schedule that lends itself to them finding their groove, this is the perfect schedule. Yeah. Um, yep. How about your take on the Tottenham Newcastle match? Another one where we had a really late penalty. I mean, the Brighton game was, I think, I mean, the Brighton United game we saw Bruno Fernandes, the penalty that he scored to make it 3 2, was given after the final whistle had gone on the uh, check. And game again, we had a really late penalty on a handball call and Callum Wilson scored. But, and uh, there's a stat in there that that goal was. Newcastle's only shot on target and that's the latest sort of time that uh, a team has got their first shot on target in a game in the 93rd minute or whatever it was. So, that alone tells you that, I mean, Newcastle barely had any um, attacking threat in this match. Spurs had all the running and all the chances, although I don't think they really created too many chances. They took the lead early on and then uh, it's not like they 
were sort of battering this uh, Newcastle door down and creating market closer chances and shots and all of that. But they did get away. Newcastle did get away with the point here because they just got lucky in the sense that because of the handball rule and the way it's being interpreted now that they got a penalty right at the end of the score. But it's a lucky point for them. Mourinho is obviously he's not going to be happy with it. He wasn't happy about it in the post-match as well. But it's, it's one of those where it's, it's the same with the Brighton game as well. United probably deserved the draw at best and they got the win here. I'd say Spurs deserved the win, but they got the draw and that's just how it is sometimes. Well, I was really struck by how lively Tottenham looked. Um, I just felt like they really, they came out wanting to win. They created a tremendous number of opportunities. Of course, they they did, they finally got that one finish that Mora, uh, first time since December 2019. Yeah, so yeah. it's been... It's been quite some time, and I know Bale is uh, is kind of licking his chops to, uh, to 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 take that role. But I will tell you, if you remember last season, I'd been complaining mightily about the handball rule to the extent where, I, and I I hate to pull the former player card, but uh, you know anybody that's played the game, it just seems they must not be on that rules committee at all because. I feel like it should go to uh, a um, at least just go to an indirect kick, right? You end up w- where where the ball where the infraction occurred. Now, if it's deliberate and that is requires interpretation, and we have VAR, and there'll still be a gray area, but it'll be a lot smaller gray area than than hitting the back of somebody's hand, uh, which is just so incidental in nature. Just. It breaks my heart that you ruin a match like that. And to Tottenham's credit, they really deserve the win on that one. And um, I don't feel that New- Newcastle, their their chances were half chances at best, maybe one or two legit. But I just felt that it was all Tottenham. Um, so a little unfortunate. Uh, I don't think the rules makers are going to change things uh, in season, but I really hope the coaches – uh, of influence kind of bind together and say, come on, let's not have another 30, what, 35 weeks worth of matches where these sort of things happen uh, because it's just wastes too much airtime and, uh, and breaks too many hearts, in my opinion. Speaking of broken hearts, Man City really had its broken heart uh, with Leicester. That is something, a 5-2 scoreline, I would have completely imagined possible but i would never the other way around leicester five man city yeah well what what happened again two penalties given away although i mean none three penalties not even two my bad three penalties given away by city although none of them were for handball i think all three were blatant and what would be worrying for pep is that all three of those were given away by three different players so there were three different players making rash decisions in the box which led to those penalties it was I can't remember who the three were. I know Ake gave one away. I know um, Mendy gave one away. I can't remember who Garcia. the was off. Garcia. Garcia, Eric Garcia, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, Garcia might be on his way out. There have been reports all throughout the summer that he's on his way to Barcelona, that they want him and all of that. He is a former Barcelona U team product, and, uh, so they want him back. But in any case, the point is that City... So, another interesting tactical point of view here. Now, we've seen City use... So Pep, uh, a 4 2 3 1 this season rather than Pep's sort of uh, go to formation of 4 3 3. He's almost fanatical about always playing a 4 3 3. 
but we've seen him go to a 4-2-3-1 this season with De Bruyne playing as a number 10. Now, what that does is that leaves City more open defensively and it also slightly hinders their counter-pressing when they press with the opposition after losing the ball. The 4-2-3-1 makes it more difficult for them to press in central areas. And we've seen a few instances of that in the Wolves game and today where they usually have one player sort of pressuring the ball and the other guys are cutting off horizontal passes so that the, the, the team on the ball have to go back rather than they can't play a pass forward or even sideways. But that wasn't really possible today. They didn't have enough bodies high up the pitch to do that. So that was an issue. Their counter-pressing is an issue which then leads to the fact that because if you can't press um, a team like Leicester today, for example, the way they set up was obviously to play direct and most teams will do that against City. So then if you're not pressing effectively enough, the other team can play over your press and then you, you're, you're, you're suddenly facing a 2-on-2 counter-attack or a 3-on-3 counter-attack. And that's what happened multiple times this season. Uh, sorry, this game. Um, Yuri Tielemans, I think twice or thrice he sent Vardy through with perfect inch-placed uh, you know, uh, balls behind the City defence. And that's just something that I don't know whether it's because Aguero is not fit or and even Jesus wasn't fit today, so they didn't play with the striker. So whether it's because people aren't fit and he doesn't have the players to play a 4-3-3, although I don't think that's the case. I think he wants to shift away from it for some reason. And it's not working in my opinion. If he if that is going to continue with a 4-2-3-1, I don't think it's going to work. He uh, he doesn't. He, his system or the, his tactics aren't built towards that. I think 4-3-3 is his best uh, formation. Yeah, I, I think... Um... You take away Aguero and and Jesus uh, from your your strikers. You you put in a, a Sterling, which is fantastic winger, um, not necessarily a proven striker. And you have some weakness in the back, and you have, you play against a team that is ruthlessly disciplined in a system of counterattack. And you know, uh, I still admire. Uh, how well KDB was able to whip some of those diagonal passes across, but you don't have an Aguero at three yards in bumping them in uh, against Schmeichel. So, um, you know, I, I do think the, a shout-out to the Riyad Mahrez uh, goal right-footed. Um, that is probably one of the best strikes I've seen in years. Um, that's just magnificent. Um, but I've – and I just can't get over – those passes to Vardy, as you said, the through passes, the the weight on those, it's just so hard to get those right. It's but a you perfect know, sort of uh, pass where it curves away from the defender, but then it curves onto Vardy's path so he doesn't have to break stride. He can well, run onto them. And that part is good. But what real what I marvel at is really figuring out what the weighting, how hard yeah, it hits yeah. the ball so he hits it mid-stride. And that, I, I will tell you, I mean – that's one of those times where, uh, you know, uh, the the beast is going to eat. Um, Vardy is just, he has that ability. Even at his age, he's able to blow past strikers 12 years younger than him, right? And if you're Gareth Southgate, you're wondering how to get Vardy's cell phone number to see if you can fast talk him back onto the team. And I hope Vardy doesn't do it because I think his yeah. club – his club record is absolutely magnificent. You know, if this if this game happened ten other times, I still think that Man City is going to win six or seven of those without the injuries. Uh, but with injuries, 
it's hard to say. It's it's so hard unpacking those teams on on the low blocks that are as disciplined as Leicester is. Uh, that is and that is I just, just the mainstay of their success yeah. going forward. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just thought that we do need to acknowledge how good Jamie Wadi is because he scored a hat trick today. Obviously, two of them were penalties, but the, the, the goal in the middle, the second goal, that that near post back flick to generate that amount of power and that amount of lift to be able to get it on a back flip, on a back heel to then be able to get it past Edison. And the funny thing is, I've seen him do this multiple times. I think he's the master of the near post finish and not just a normal finish. I've seen him do that back heel finish as well. I can remember him doing that, I think, three or four years ago in a game against Germany. England won, I think, 3-2 in Germany. And uh, he had scored a similar goal at the near post with a back heel. And I think he's done it a couple of other times in the Premier League as well. So he's just a master of, as as it was said on the commentary as well, by uh, I think Peter Drury, that where he's just a master of economy of movement. Where he, he's just, he doesn't do too much in the sense that in terms of getting on the ball. But his runs are absolutely spot on. He, he knows when to run, where to run and all of that. And when he gets the ball, he's devastating. I think another stat... Just to put that into context, I think he had 14 or 15 touches of the ball in the entire match and he scored three goals. Yeah. That just tells you the economy of movement and the economy of effort that I was talking about. That he, he knows when to run and he knows what just how to put the ball in the back of the net. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't get the sense that he thought through what the trajectory of that uh, that shot was going to be. But as you said, necessity is the mother of invention. And when you're yeah. running onto the ball in the near post, and he's probably tried that, but he's, I think what you nailed the point is that he knows where to be the right time, right place. And he's just so phenomenally dangerous for that. And for that reason, I'll always be interested in watching a Leicester game just to see him be that, that feral fox that he really is. Because uh, I don't, I, I got to imagine we got one more year, two more years like this, and that's it. So let's enjoy him for where he is. So enough of a shout out to um, to Vardy. Let's move to the Leeds-Sheffield United game, which I thought had some very interesting tactical implications, had some championship uh, history circa two years ago. Tell us, help us um, process that game. Um, Yeah, it was quite interesting. Just the one goal, which is... (laughs) Not in keeping with how most games have gone this weekend and otherwise, you know, you've seen bucket loads of goals, but uh, it was still a really interesting game and I sort of uh, circled this in my diary in terms of the game I want to watch because it's uh, it was again two managers with very innovative and very, very interesting tactics coming up against each other. And that did happen to an extent where Leeds really started the game really well, they were controlling possession, you could see it's, it's not the same way in which both the teams play, but both... Bielsa and Wilder like to have overloads down the flanks. You could see that happening with Leeds as well. It was a back three, basically. They weren't even, it wasn't even a 4-1-4-1. It was a proper back three that they played. Luke Ayling was the left coast, right, uh, right side centre-half today rather than a right back. You had Elder Costa and Jack Harrison as a sort of wingers slash wingbacks today. So he changed the system to an extent. I mean, it, it's a similar system that he, that he plays uh, even when they have the ball. So it's not too much of a change, but... He did adapt a bit to how Sheffield United play and they weren't really in the game in the first half, I'd say, or for the majority of the first half because Leeds had the ball, the Leeds had most of the chances. But at the same time, it's because Leeds are so adventurous, they get um, 
players ahead of the ball and they look to attack. Sheffield United did have chances on the counter attack. Ilian uh, Neslia had to make two brilliant saves in the first half. Uh, Ramsdale, Aaron Ramsdale also made a couple of good saves in the first half. And then uh, second half, more of the same, although I think Sheffield United grew into it. They were able to get some of those passing triangles going down the right-hand side and the left-hand side. The centre-backs were able to get forward. But they did sort of tire towards the 65th, 70-odd minutes or so. You could see a distinct drop in their physical output, which was obviously then affecting how they were pressing and how much um, effort they were able to put off the ball. And um, yeah, Leeds came away with a win. They, I think Bielsa will probably be really happy with the fact that they managed to keep a clean sheet after having conceded seven goals in their first two games. So they kept a clean sheet. They scored the goal. Patrick Bamford now has three goals in three games, which is the first time ever for any Leeds player to have done so in the first three games of a league season. So that that's a good sign for them that they've got their main man who's their number nine scoring goals. And uh, yeah, I think Leeds have obviously been the best of the promoted side so far. West Brom were impressive against Chelsea, but then obviously they didn't manage to hold on to the win and Fulham haven't been that great. So Leeds, I think, will... I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they pull a Sheffield in that sense where um, obviously Sheffield United finished uh, high up the table 8th or 9th, I believe, last season. And it could be a similar sort of case for Leeds. Sheffield United, on the other hand, they've lost all three games. They've not scored a goal yet bit of a concern now. I mean, it's still early and I still think that um, the lack of preseason has been the major reason for that and the fact that they've not got a striker in. If they manage to get Ryan Brewster in from Liverpool and they are obviously able to get more work on the training ground and maybe two or three weeks down the line, we might see a different side. But obviously, not having scored a goal three games in is a bit of a concern. Yeah, I think my take on the game is it... it didn't feel like a 1-0 game. Uh, The intensity levels of both sides were, I I mean, I was exhausted by halftime. I I was ready to take a nap. Uh, There was so much work being done. Um, You know, I I would say that the the, um, players of the match needed to be the goalkeepers because that could have easily been a 4-3 game or even a 5-4 game given the number of, really impressive saves both keepers made uh, in that. So I do think that both teams did create dangerous opportunities. I think Leeds created a few more um, uh, dangerous scoring opportunities, but uh, I think the goalkeepers really earned their living. Uh, and it's, it's a bit of uh, a bit surprising that you have a 20 and a 22 year old keeper that can make that much of an impact in a premier league game that, that goes counter to, what the traditional thoughts are. You have to be 27 or 28 to really come into your own to be a keeper. But if these guys come into their own at 27 or 28, they're going to be absolute rock stars. So I actually, I really enjoyed the energy. Uh, You know, I just, I can't get over still how uh, the Leeds players just don't fall over after about 60 minutes because they are just flat out everything. And then what, it's not like the Sheffield United players were sloughing off either. So I, I really enjoyed that game, though scoreline did not indicate um, what a competitive and dangerous match it was. So, and I would agree with you. I, I, I would say for the most part, the newly promoted teams seem to be holding their own now. Um, and, you know, time will tell uh, where they, they where they go with that. We do have one really big game on the other end of the table, which is the Arsenal Liverpool game on Monday. 
what are, what are the things you're going to look at there? And what, are the, what do you think are going to be the difference makers? So, yeah, the Arsenal-Liverpool have already played in the Community Shield, which sort of kicked off this season. Arsenal won it on penalties, but it was uh, a stalemate in normal time. And uh, you, uh, you were speaking earlier about how uh, managers who sort of just ended their playing careers recently and are now coming into management, what sort of ideas they bring in and what how they uh, look to play the game and whether they are ready to take sort of... Uh, feedback on board or, or, or new sort of concepts on board or whether they still learn how they used to go. Um, I think while Lampard and Solskjaer are the types of guys who are trying to do things based on how on how things were when they used to play the game, Arteta is one of the guys who's sort of in part of the new wave. Obviously, the fact that he's spent three years with City as Pep's assistant has led to a very solid grounding in terms of the tactical um, uh, knowledge and the tactical identity he wants to have on the pitch, and but you can already see that with Arsenal, and that's the difference between um, and uh, in the sense that that's the difference I feel between Arsenal and Man United and Chelsea, where those two guys, Solskjaer and Lampard, have been in charge longer. But I think Arteta has managed to have Arsenal playing in a distinct style and a distinct identity a lot quicker than the, uh, than the other two guys have, and I don't think that that's going to change either. It does, that in the sense that I think Arteta has a plan in place and he's got the players um, that he wants to play as part of that system. And those are the guys who are in the group. And the guys who aren't, just aren't. Like Matteo Guendouzi is not part of his plans. We know Mesut Ozil isn't part of his plans. So all the guys who aren't going to be part of his plans aren't going to get a look in into the side at all, no matter what the circumstances or what opposition you're coming up against. So I've been really impressed with that side of Arsenal. Liverpool... Obviously, there now we've seen reports that Thiago could be a doubt for tomorrow. Alisson might be a doubt for tomorrow. But regardless of that, just the fact that they've got Thiago in, they got Diogo Jota in from Wolves. And now they've suddenly got fantastic bench strength where you've got the ability to rotate uh, Salah and Mane and not have too much of a drop-off in quality. You've got options in midfield to play against different types of teams in terms of what you want to play, whether you want that functional midfield of Wijnaldum, uh, Wijnaldum Henderson and uh, and uh, who's the third guy? Why am I forgetting? The third? Uh, Fabinho. So if you want that functional sort of midfield or whether you want more creativity with Thiago, with Naby Keita coming in. So I think Liverpool have just added another string to their bow and they've turned at the absolute right time when it might have seemed as if their tactics and the way of playing uh, was something that other teams could now figure out or maybe there were weaknesses and they've strengthened that at the right time. So, obviously, it'll be a fascinating game. I think it'll be a lot of fun to watch. But uh, from uh, I think, again, just off the evidence of the first three seasons, I think, again, Liverpool are going to be the team to beat because they look like the team who have sort of gone into this season as the most settled unit uh, and the others are still uh, playing catch-up, even City. Yeah, I think my take is I, I believe that the result... The scoreline is going to feel pretty pedestrian at a two-one. Uh, question is, I don't know who's going to win it two-to-one. Yeah. Um, I would have said if uh, Allison, if there were not injuries that Liverpool were facing, I, I think Allison's worth a half a goal uh, just by being in there. I think Adrian is a serviceable second stringer, but I think in this particular case, uh, it could really go either way. Uh, just because Liverpool plays with so much more confidence. Than um, uh, when when Allison is in, uh, and 
I, I guess in terms of key difference makers, it's going to come down to the the matchups. Really, how are they going to be able to contain Aubameyang? That that's going to be really interesting. They Liverpool possesses the speed in the back line to be able to handle it, but uh, you know, I just. I wonder, Allison has a great way of making two or three instruction, just absolutely important saves to either keep a clean sheet or one goal. And without him being in there, uh, my bets are off. I, I'm, not, I'm not betting on this game, I, though I do think that it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a three-goal game and it's 2-1 and it could be decided by, by um, you know, some, some last or some, at least some second-half heroics. Um, let's turn our attention to the Leeds Man City game. Uh, Man City is going to be licking its wounds. Leeds is going to feel like they've got a little bit of momentum. Uh, this is going to be one of these incredible systems clashes. Man City is, if there's a time for Leeds to play Man City and get away with a win or a tie, this would be the time given the number of injuries. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, as you said, it's going to be one, a, a very... In, I hope. I mean, I don't know what the scoreline could be. It could be another crazy four-three-five-two, whatever. And because Leeds have been involved in those sort of games already, City have been involved in those sort of games already. And both these sides play in such an attacking manner that you could. I I think I can almost go out on a limb and say that there'll be at least four or five times in that match where you'd see a two-on-two two or a three-on-three counter-attacks. Either way, either for Leeds or for City, just because of the way they play. And if you thought, I mean. Just for guys who are still new to Marcelo Bielsa, I mean, if you thought Pep Guardiola was um, absolutely dogmatic and stubborn, you've you've no idea what Marcelo Bielsa is like. He will not change his approach, no matter who he's playing against, no matter what side leads are up against, whether it's Man City or, I mean, even a Barcelona, for example, or Bayern Munich or whoever they ever come up against again with Bielsa at the helm, they're going to play in the same way. So. It's going to be, again, one of the standout fixtures of, of next week. And uh, as you said, probably one of the best times to play City is right now because they don't have a weather, they won't have Aziz for this game. A uh, couple of other injury absentees, they look shaky at the back. Uh, so, yeah, I can totally see Leeds maybe even stealing a win. But even if that doesn't happen, just the matchups across the field in terms of because Bielsa likes to go man-to-man all over the field. So, whether uh, De Bruyne is able to get space to be able to play crosses in. But at the same time, if you're going man-to-man against someone like Sterling, it's it's incredibly dangerous because you're essentially going down one-on-one against a guy with his pace and if he gets in behind you, then you're done. You know, you don't have cover. So, stuff like that is going to be really interesting to watch and I can see it becoming an absolute goal fest. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm very excited about this game. Uh, it's, it's probably the one that I have the... Uh, the biggest circle around in the, the schedule for this week. Um, how about we, we'd been talking about Arsenal. How do you think the Arsenal uh, Sheffield United game is going to come? What, what are you going to see? Actually, give me a storyline. I mean, a, a scoreline for Leeds Man City. What do you think that's scored? <laughs> Three, two, two Leeds. Three, two Leeds. I love it. All right. Um, Arsenal Sheffield United. What do you think? How is that going to play out? As much of a Sheffield United fan as I am, over whatever they did last season. I am slightly concerned, as I said earlier, about their first three weeks so far. Because, again, it's not like their system isn't working in terms of... It's not as if they're not creating those overloads down the right and left flank. And it's not like the centre-backs aren't overlapping. 
all of that is still happening but it's just that extra bit of physical effort or i wouldn't even say extra bit if sheffield united were at 100% last season all throughout almost of last season they're probably at 75 or 80% at the moment or maybe even 85% but that 10 or 15% that they're lacking at the moment is what is letting them down because they're running out of steam about two thirds of the way through matches about 60 65 70 odd minutes you can literally see a visible drop in physical intensity and that just says that they've not obviously had a proper preseason which is the case for most teams so again it's it's i want to see them do well but arsenal could be a, another game where it may not be easy because obviously you've got obameyang you've got lacazette you've got billion you've got uh, danny shebayos and jaka in midfield so getting the ball back will be difficult keeping the ball will be difficult and obviously arsenal again are slightly vulnerable defensively but they have tightened up on that side of things with the back three that uh, that arteta has been playing with they have managed to tighten things up gabriel looks like a good addition um Kieran Tierney obviously is injured. I don't know if he'll play tomorrow or even next week against Sheffield United. But if he comes back in again, that's another uh, solid defender who's come in and someone who's obviously great at attacking as well, with either as a left back or as a left sided centre half when he passes down the line to Aubameyang. So Sheffield United will have their work cut out. I, I see Arsenal winning that game, but what I want to see from Sheffield United is a bit more evidence that they're getting up there physically in terms of their physical output and physical levels and. Um, that they put up a, a more of a fight because i they don't need to match what they did last season in terms of finishing in the top half of the table but i don't want to see them relegated so if they want to be clear of relegation trouble they really need to be at a level where they can beat sides around them and it's fine if they lose to the likes of arsenal and united or man city or whatever but they need to beat the teams around them and to do that they need to get their physical levels uh, at a much higher level So I think this I think Arsenal is, I mean if if Sheffield United comes out and plays in the open style that it's known for I think Arsenal's going to feast on them. They don't have Sheffield United does not have its mojo yet and I just think that um you know Arsenal may feel a little beat up after the Liverpool match. Uh they could feel even more emboldened but my sense is that uh Sheffield does not United doesn't have the back line to be able to contain um, Arsenal's offensive abilities. Yeah. On on that point also just sorry to interrupt I forgot to add that um, Sheffield United have lost Jack O'Connell to and yeah. he, he's having any uh, surgery sometime soon. So there's there reports that he could be out for the rest of the season but even if that's not the case he's he's going to be out for a while and again with Sheffield United they had a settled lineup last season you could predict what the 11 men were going to be every week. um they've lost jack o'connell so then jack robinson's had to come in they've had a few additions into their team as well but wilder chris wilder has been changing things up as well and so it's not the settled unit that we had last season they've changed their goalkeeper as well cuz dean henderson's gone back to united so they've bought aaron ramsdale in from burnmouth and he's a good keeper but that understanding that you have between the center backs and this goalkeeper needs to be built over time that will take time as well so yeah you're what you said basically that they don't have a settled unit at the, at the moment is is a bit of a concern and to me that's that means a 3-0 scoreline arsenal um you know and it's it's <laughs> not going to get any easier for sheffield united because they're going to have some rest, respite playing against fulham but then they have to play liverpool man city chelsea uh and then um then they they'll get a, a an appetite of west ham uh west brom and leicester so I would say that this is unfortunately they're hitting 
one would argue the toughest part of their season with a key injury and um, they don't have their mojo right now. And that's, that's going to make what you would hope they would be a mid table uh, could kind of get them in the relegation hunt of which we all hope that they end up on the right side of that. So, um, so time will tell on that piece. Um, how about a look at another showcase game is the, the Man United Tottenham match. Uh, ready or not, those teams are going to be playing with each other. And I'd say it seems like they're not ready. They're not hitting their mojo. But what, what are the things we need to be looking for for those matches? First of all, just, I mean, not from a tactical or analytical point of view or anything of that sort, just to wind Mourinho up. I really hope United get a late, late penalty in this game as well and they score and they win the game. He's, he's anyway super annoyed because of today's game, uh, the penalty that they lost. Um, I don't know if you followed what happened in midweek, but um, they went away to Skendija, I think it's how it's pronounced, in the Europa League. They won 3-1, but before the game, there was a controversy because the, the home team, which is, had sort of reduced the size of their goal by 5 centimeters, And Mourinho picked, saw that during his pre-match walk of the pitch or whatever, UEFA delegates were called in and then, and then they had to sort of change the goals back to what the size actually needs to be. So, that happened. And then, Oli, uh, yesterday, uh, after the Brighton game, Oli were basically... Um, because Brighton hit the woodwork five times, he made a comment and said that um, I'm just glad Mur- uh, Jose wasn't uh, wasn't around here, or else we would have found out that Brighton, you know, that the goals were smaller in this game as well because Brighton hit them five times and all of that. Mourinho responded to that today, saying that I think it's not the size of the goals that uh, Ole needs to be concerned with; it's the size of the penalty box because they're getting so many penalties. Mm-hmm. So he's already responded to something that Ole said. There's a bit of a clash going on in that sense. He's obviously a previous the guy who. Solskjaer replaced at United as manager. So there is that bit of needle and all of that. And just to add to all of that, it'll be great if United get a penalty in the last minute and win. But other than that, from a tactical point of view, I think this is going to be a bit of a damn squib of a match, honestly. Both teams look a bit undercooked. Both teams look like they're still trying to figure out how what they are and what their tactical identity is and all of that. And they don't look at as if they're in top form. So I really think this could be if not the first goalless draw of this Premier League season, it could potentially end up in a drop. Is, or maybe somebody nicks a win with a lucky counter-attack or something like that. Because I can't see too much great attacking going on or, some, or too much uh, evidence of, uh, a lot of you know, good team moves and all that. Because neither manager is known for that. Mourinho throughout his career is not known for building together teams which do well from an attacking point of view in terms of synchronized moves. And we're seeing that with Solskjaer as well. So it's just, it's more reliant on off the cuff and um, instant sort of uh, imagination and, and, and the stuff that you can pull off on the pitch on that moment. And when the players aren't physically 100%, that's a lot more difficult to do. So yeah, I think it's going to be a bit of a damn script, to be honest. Yeah, my, my take is it's going to be a 1 1 draw and um, it'll be mostly canceling themselves out. I desperately wish that Bale would be healthy for this game, just to kind of up <laughs> yeah, the stakes. That's not going to happen. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. It's it, when watching the matches, it's it's hard to get a really clear sense of what systems um, they're standing for, uh, and that's unusual because 
with Reno sort of matches, at least historically, and I'm maybe reaching farther back in time. If you saw a way a team played, you knew that it was coached by Mourinho. Now it's, he's got personnel that does not suit his system and he's having to make do with it. Um, so, yeah, so I think 1-1 is going to be how that game's going to end. Uh, time will tell on that. Um, what are some things that you took away from this week, Harshell? And that's the first question. And then the second question is, is what are some things you're going to be looking for in the coming weeks? I think you can't not talk about the penalties. Um, I saw a stat on Twitter just before we got on that more than 25% of the total number of penalties that were given in last season's Premier League have already been given in the first three weeks of this season. If you extrapolate the number of penalties that have been given so far in the matches that have occurred across a whole season, we're on track to see 303 penalties awarded in the Premier League this season. And just for context, the record number of penalties in a Premier League season is 112. So we're on track to 3x the number of penalties that have been given in a Premier League season. Now, I'm not saying that this trend will continue. We could probably see a bit of a reduction. But as I said earlier, 25, we've already seen uh, the penalty incidents or penalty numbers cross 25% of last season's tally. And we're, we're not even 10% into the season yet. Barely. We've had three weeks. So, I mean... Yes, and, and that's and there the, are the two things here which I think which are important. First, obviously, is the fact that the way the handball rule is being interpreted now is that as if it hits a defender's arm in the box, no matter where his arm is or what his intention was, and if a goal scoring opportunity is denied in the same phase of play, it's a penalty. So that I mean, I can honestly see players turn this into a deliberate tactic where you just get into the box and you aim a really hard shot or a, or, a, or a really hard kick of the ball at a defender's arm. He can't get it out of his way, out of the way. It hits his hand and it's a penalty. And that's a legitimate tactic that teams could now start using to win a penalty. So, and as you said earlier, it's, it's disproportionate because if you look at ex- expected goals, XG, a penalty has an XG of 0.75. That's the highest incidents of XG of any incident in a game of football, anywhere, any chance. So you've got such a high um, sort of probability of scoring, that sort of opportunity being created from, I mean, offenses which aren't, uh, which shouldn't ideally be giving away those sort of opportunities. So it's not going to happen this season, but there are already people calling for maybe indirect free kicks being given for non-intentional handballs and only if it's a deliberate handball or where you can see that the guy, that the defender is making himself big by sort of, you know, stretching his arms out and then it hits the hand and that's when you give a penalty away. The other instances you should be probably giving away a direct, uh, an indirect free kick because otherwise we're just going to see, I mean, as all managers have been speaking out against it, we had Roy Hodgson speak out against it after he lost uh, against Everton last uh, yesterday to a penalty. Today, Steve Bruce, the Newcastle manager, who was on this, who was the beneficiary of a penalty decision, has said that he's not in favor of this. This doesn't work because obviously, if the shoe was on the other foot, he'd not be happy. Mourinho has obviously already spoken his piece about this, and I don't think that this is how football should be played. Where, I mean, you just hit a ball at a defender, no matter where his hand is, and it gives away a penalty. It's it's ridiculous in my opinion, and I mean, I'll wait for your thoughts on this, but. It does also mean that you take away some of the ambiguity, which was the problem earlier. People used to say that it's ambiguous. Referees are sort of 
um, making their own mind up about intent because that was what it was earlier, whether a player intended to handle the ball and that it should be that subjective. This is obviously a lot more objective. It's clear cut. If the ball hits the hand, it's a penalty. But we've gone from one extreme to the other. I think it needs to be a bit of a balance between those two things. Well, I, I, I can't agree with you more on it. I, I think penalties, you know, as a former goalkeeper, I think penalties <laughs> are always deplorable. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd like to see matches set out, settled in a, a 35-yard one-on-one NASL shootout sort of thing um, at the end of matches that don't finish. So you always have a winner. Um, you know, the hand, I've already said my piece about the handballs, uh, indirect free kick. I don't really care what people say. Well, it's uh, measuring intent is really hard to do. It makes a bigger gray space into a much smaller gray space. And to me, that's as good as you can do with technology until they start hitting, putting up electrodes into players' brains to figure out, measure what their intent is. Uh, we're just going to have to settle with that ambiguity. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think that um, it's a little disappointing. You will say that, uh, you know, Vardy's goals, uh, you know, two of them being penalty kicks, it just, it's a goal but it's not really a goal in my mind. It's a penalty kick, right? So it's, it's almost like a, a, a goal with an asterisk with it. So I would say that's, that's a one thing that I hope gets changed mid-season, though I don't value or rate highly the innovative nature of the rule makers for um, our game. Uh, and we need to innovate because other sports are innovating and we need to keep, keep things that stay abreast of where, what technology is taking us to. Um, and we're going to encounter this more and more, these type of situations more and more as technology gets even better and better. So the thing that I'm, I am really struck by is how, the, how expectations is, have, have ratcheted up so much more for the bigger teams. Chelsea, obviously, Man U, even Tottenham, Right, I mean, Tottenham sang the blues on the number of injuries they had last season, and they were that was true. Um, Arsenal, right? Um, oddly, I don't feel Liverpool is is overburdened by expectations. Obviously, Man City has a little bit ratcheted up in terms of expectations. Um, you know, there's an, a general impatience, but I just feel like, given the dollars that that it were spent, uh, that kind of shortens the clock on the time bomb. Uh, when you spend more dollars, it's like cutting the wrong wire, I guess. So, you know, I'm, I'm very interested to see that. I'm interested to see how, um, how systems of play, really clearly defined systems of play, um, end up helping the teams at the lower level punch above their weight. So I'm, I'm hoping, um, that, that, that level of parity is going to get better and better. Um, because in the other leagues, it's hopeless, right? La Liga, you've got two and a half, maybe three with Suarez going to Atletico Madrid. Um, you know, uh, Ligun, you've got one. And, you know, I think City is going to give the EPL a run for the money in terms of an interesting title fight. So um, I, I think those expectations are going to weigh heavy on a lot of managers. And I'm curious to see how many of them end up you know, what's the over-under? Is it two that end up getting let go um, by the high-profile managers? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, 
as you said the, the it's probably um going to be a season where sort of defined styles of play will help a lot more because again it ties back to what i said earlier that's what allows teams to be able to win games or if not win games create chances even when they're not playing at 100% efficiency whether physically or mentally or tactically or whatever because it's just you've got a pattern of play in rain and that sort of muscle memory whether you want to call it muscle memory or just repetitive action in training makes you makes it easier for you to execute it on the pitch even if you're not physically there uh, you know in terms of your conditioning and that is going to be the case for most teams this season because of the short pre-season as i said earlier this is probably going to be a season where we see maybe one or two teams have a bit of a surprise run and end up in places higher than they would have been normally again i'm not saying that it could be a lesser and say everton can win the title this year but i wouldn't be surprised if everton are in the top 4 or maybe even or the top 6 this season you know because of the fact that they look like they're a settled unit whereas the other teams don't the other sort of the likes of city uh Yeah, City don't look that settled. United, Chelsea, Spurs to an extent. Um, Liverpool and Arsenal, to be honest, are the only ones which look like they have some sort of uh, balance already in place. And another thing, I don't think this is going to be a season where we're going to see um, the title winners rack up ninety plus points, or they're going to, or anybody sort of going on, uh, you know, long unbeaten runs or long runs of winning games and all of that among the top teams. I think this is going to be a much more evenly matched or rather a much more competitive season just because of the fact that it's not been the ideal um uh, sort of preparation going into into uh, this campaign so i don't think it's going to be a season where the liverpool or the city go to the 1995 98 or points I, i think it'll be a lot less needed to win the title this year i'm inclined to agree with you and i would say that is kind of the third trend if you will is it's just going to be messy this season right i mean yeah. i i think um two and three years ago the um league championship was almost sterile right man city were very clinical about things um and then liverpool had already taken a lot of the drama out of the title race um fairly fairly early um in the season i think in this one they're going to be starts and stops i think they're going to be players that are going to have to sit out due to covid Uh, and that's going to change things i think games are going to have to be rescheduled and i think it's still a little insane that you have uh uh teams that are playing three and four matches in 10 days uh you know i don't even i don't care if you're man city uh you, that's still just a lot of wear and tear on your best players um and and i guess what'll end up happening is some of the academy um uh kids will get some starts Uh, or some folks on the U23s and we'll see some names that will give us a, a headline to what the future is which is kind of the way I thought it might have been back in the old days uh where you had to rely on your academy much more than go out and buy a player from Germany or France or someplace else so i i i'm actually i'm excited i do think that the the teams are going to get kind of weary and that could compromise play at some point um that still could lead for some very exciting matches but uh yeah i just think messy is going to be the best way that's going to describe this up- upcoming season what any other things that you're you're looking for or that you've seen we're only i'm going to say two and a half weeks into it because some yeah. teams didn't even play a full three weeks i don't think we can draw any ready conclusions quite yet i still think that even a sheffield united which 
has yet to score a goal, you could just put that up against a statistical anomaly and things will right themselves, um, much in the way that you don't expect Crystal Palace to keep doing what they're doing, but you know, uh, things are going to revert back to the mean, but any other things that, that are, that are holding your attention in terms of what, what to look for? Yeah. Um, just the number of goals that have been scored so far. Again, it's all sort of interlinked in the sense that again, because teams haven't had a preseason, so they've not, they're not at their sort of physical best. They've not had a chance to play together too many times. So that understanding isn't there. That's leaving. I mean, that, that's leading to a lot of open games. We've obviously already seen that happen. Uh, the Leicester game, the Brighton uh, Man United game this week, the Chelsea uh, West Brom game. Last week, we had a bunch of goal, games where there were tons of goals scored. So, it's just, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch as a spectator, but that's not something you ideally want the league to descend into where every game can be a 4-3 or a 3-2 or a 5-2 or something like that. Again, as you said, I think it will probably revert to the mean as the weeks go on, as teams play more and they build their fitness up. But, I still, but I'm still interested to see if this sort of trend where we're seeing so many goals continues. Penalties have had a role to play in that as well, the increased number of penalties that have been given. But uh, other than that, even from open play, we've seen some horrendous defending, to be honest. And from not just from like smaller teams, we've seen horrendous defending from the big teams. Liverpool have been character, uncharacteristically open. They conceded three on the opening day against Leeds. Van Dijk and Allison making a mistake, which, I mean, forget that happening in the same game. I think that happening individually in separate games is unheard of. Like, it's so rare and that happened in the same game. Um, Chelsea have been open defensively. City, we saw today, are very open defensively. Um, so, even Spurs, to an extent, haven't been, you know, they've not really been very defensively solid. So, it, it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Whether teams can tighten up, whether they're able to get their defensive systems in place as the weeks go on or maybe even for two or three weeks more, we'll probably see a lot more goals being scored and then maybe gradually things could settle down. But it's, it's a function of all the stuff that you spoke about, the fact that we've not had preseason, the fact that the schedule is so compressed. I mean, Spurs, it's ridiculous the number of games they have to play if they progress in the Carabao Cup and the Europa League qualifying rounds. The number of games they have to play in a short span of time, it's like they have a game every three or four days. So, all of that will have a lot of bearing. As you said, it's going to be a very, um, to, to agree with your, the, the phrase that you use, it's going to be a very messy season in that sense. Right. Well, Harshel, thank you so much for that. Um, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, the EPL Prospectus, Moneyball for Football, Analytics Plus Eye Candy, available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Join us on our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.